Hey everyone, uh, this is Gavin. This is Jenny. And uh, I know we haven't podcasted for a while, but um, we uh, we just uh, finished on Sunday. We just finished the 53rd New York Film Festival. Um, it was a great one, and uh, so we kind of wanted to give everybody an update. And, um, you know, we might make this a more regular thing. We don't know yet. Uh, so uh, that that's kind of all up in the air. Uh, what dates we might publish and such, but um, we definitely wanted to get this out because we thought there were a lot of strong films this year, and uh, we just uh, wanted to get back into podcasting, I guess. Get back into the swing of things, yeah. Yeah, get back into it. So uh, with that, uh, I guess we can. Uh, I guess we can kick things off. I'm Jenny Leffler, and I'm Gavin Briscoe, and this podcast is not yet rated. Basically, the New York Film Festival, I know when we had uh, the original podcast with Matt, um, I know, you know, sometimes each year we'd get some missives from me, um, just kind of what films that I had seen, Uh, but they felt a bit random, um, and uh, I wasn't really able to get to a whole lot, um, I guess, with the podcasting schedule and all of that. So, but now I think... uh, since Jenny's also in the city now, uh, and I have a bit more time to spend uh, watching these festival films, I think between the two of us, we actually have a pretty good feel for this year's festival, the selections, uh, kind of the goings-on, and uh, all of that sort of thing. We definitely had a big variety of films this year, too. Um... Yeah, it was a a wide range of genres, and uh, what's great about the New York Film Festival, and it's always great, is that it's really an amalgamation of, like, the best in international cinema. Um, So, like, movies that might have played at Cannes are finally coming to New York for the first time, and sometimes to North America for the first time. So it's... uh, it's a nice mix of world premieres and uh u.s premieres u.s premieres and then uh it's also kind of uh what would you call it 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 kind of picks the picks and chooses the best from like berlin can what have you that haven't had official releases yet in the united states um i myself i think i've been going since the 48th film festival i think so 2010 and i started i started at the the 50th yeah so Um, which is as good a place as I need to start, really. Uh, And then this year was the 53rd uh, annual New York Film Festival. And the New York Film Festival takes place at Lincoln Center. Uh, It's hosted by the Film Society of Lincoln Center, uh, which has been around for, uh, you know, 53-plus years now. Um, And uh, it's just a really... I think it's one of those times during the year um, that, uh, at least for us, uh, is kind of like a must must see it's kind of like an exciting time and it's also it's just it's basically two and a half weeks of just nothing but film right and it's all these film lovers that you're surrounded by and it's just 
it's an extraordinary experience. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit different than like uh, say the Tribeca Film Festival, which is very, um, I, I, which I would say is more democratic in many ways. You're getting you're getting like native New Yorkers just coming and seeing movies, and that's another beautiful experience. Uh, but the New York is 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 very much about the art of cinema. I would say. I think another great thing, in addition to that, is it's all hosted in one specific area one specific space yeah tribeca is is allegedly supposed to be in the you know in tribeca but um you know it kind of spreads out throughout all of lower manhattan uh but you're on the lincoln center campus for new york film festival and it's just you know there's no more beautiful place in manhattan than lincoln center um and so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of uh, our thoughts going into it. Uh, basically, what we wanted to do is uh, to go into our top fives and just share that with you guys, a few of our least favorites, and then some of the things that maybe traditional media outlets aren't covering, like the Convergence section of the festival or the revivals. So, so uh, we're going to get, by the end of the show, you guys should have a nice little overview of the New York Film Festival, uh, some things to keep your eyes on, and then hopefully a little bit of news about our own show. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Jenny, do you want to start us off with your, uh, your fifth best film or fifth favorite film, I should say, of this year's festival? Of course. Uh, my fifth favorite film of the festival this year, um, it was a South Korean film called Right Now, Wrong Then, uh, directed by Hong Sang-soo. Um, kind of hard to describe how you would classify this film but I'm guessing it's it's a romance drama told in two parts um the first part is kind of the they they start off saying uh right then wrong now um and the second part is right now wrong then so you can kind of get a feel of uh where these two individuals are in their relationship at these points but um I thought it was a very sweet film. We both saw it. And it, it was very... The cinematography was very interesting. Um, the soundtrack, the score was pretty interesting. Just uh, It was very simple. Well, talk about the cinematography a little bit, because that was one of the more... Uh, I thought one of the more remarkable parts of the film. Well, yeah, it was definitely one of the more remarkable parts. And, and in that, instead of like editing and cutting away and zooming in on someone and... The way that the director chose to, I guess, focus on certain parts in a scene. So instead of, like, cutting to a zoom in on someone's face or whatever you would want to call that, the director zooms in with his camera, and it's still all one shot. And then he'll maybe zoom out to get both characters back into the shot. Right. It's 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 almost as if he's he's cutting with the zooms. So instead of so it's big, it's all one long take, but he's giving us the different perspectives that he might have given us with the cuts, um, and uh, he he's instead using the zooms, and it's 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 like a cropping technique almost. He's cropping the frame constantly, but everything you're always constantly aware that there's further motion outside of the frame. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. I really enjoyed the film um, as well, um, and uh, we might hear a little bit more about that uh later on in the show um my number five was uh the new steven spielberg film it's called bridge of spies uh it opens up uh october 16th 
Um, so, uh, just, just this weekend, it should be opening. And, um, I mean, to me, I've been disappointed by recent Steven Spielberg. I've been disappointed, really disappointed by Lincoln. Um, I just didn't, uh... I completely forgot about Lincoln. Yeah, I just, I, I completely just did not, um, get it. Like, I, I, I understand why everybody enjoys that movie, but... Uh, to me, it just seems like if you have a filmmaker of Spielberg's caliber that, like, you would just want to do something more than, like, this traditional biopic. And, you know, the Kushner screenplay was fantastic, but I- I- I've been disappointed. Let- let's just put it that way. Uh, and I think Bridge of Spies is a nice little return to form. I mean, I think it's a darker... It's definitely... Um, dark kind of like his more recent films um but i think it's uh it has that kind of i don't know what you would call it uh what you might compare it to like uh mm, like uh, which of his films might you compare it to it's it's a lot of uh i don't know it's an adventure movie it's (laughs) It's a it's an adventure yeah it's a bit of a thriller yeah you i mean going into it i didn't really know how to or expect how it would end yeah to me it it, to me it's almost like um it's indiana jones without the without the action scenes really that's kind of it it's with that sense of fun and adventure but still you know these weighty themes it's set during the cold war basically tom hanks plays uh a a u.s attorney who is uh assigned to uh he's assigned to defend uh somebody who uh is spying for the russians uh played by the great actor mark rylance uh, who Who is completely unrecognizable in this film well jenny (laughs) to jenny he was unrecognizable but if you've seen him he's an amazing actor yeah i mean you you might have caught him uh as cromwell and uh the pbs miniseries wolf hall or you know his many many stage uh, achievements. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this movie just really, uh, to me, it's, it, it is the definition of a crowd pleaser. And I think that's what Spielberg does best. I think he was also able to kind of weave in some of these more intricate, um, and, uh, subtle themes about, you know, diplomacy and the power of talking and persuasion, and how not everything needs to end in violence. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's obviously a very necessary uh, thing, uh, you know, that this country needs to hear right now. Um, and I think that the the actors in this film play it off well, Hanks and Rylance especially. But then you also have, uh, in supporting roles, Amy Ryan, who I think does uh, maybe a little underutilized in this film. I think she's, I think she's an actress of great talent and uh, you know, I, I don't know. Spielberg really knows what to do with her. But then another great theater actor, Scott Shepard, um, who uh, who I think does a really great, strong supporting role as kind of one of Tom Hanks' handlers uh, when uh, when Hanks' character ends up in Russia. So uh, to me, I think this is a return to form for Spielberg. This is like a great crowd pleaser that you know you could take your girlfriend to, you can take your parents to over Thanksgiving. Uh, that's that kind of film. So, Bridge of Spies, uh, October 16th, uh, that's my number five. And I'll give my two cents on that film in a little bit, because I think we're going to see that again. Right. So, what was your uh, what was your fourth favorite? My, for, my fourth favorite is, um, it's a 
I guess it's pretty different from Bridge of Spies. It's this uh, little movie called The Lobster, uh, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Correct me if I'm wrong no. on the pronunciation. No, that's right. um, which, and this film currently has no U.S. release date yet, but uh, has distribution, I believe. Yeah, it has distribution. Um, I assume that it's going to be uh, in 2016. I'm not quite sure why they didn't they didn't uh, position it for uh, an awards for an awards uh, release slot. But um, yeah, you'll 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 probably see it early 2016. But the lobster, it's it's this very interesting weird little film um i had brief exposure to another yorgos lanthimos film that i didn't make it all the way through um it was called dog tooth which i've also heard is another strange kind of film but uh this time the lobster it's very much a romance story set in this very it's set in this world where everyone must have a mate and if you don't I don't know if this is going to give anything away, but if you if you don't find a mate, you get turned into an animal. <laughs> um, and it stars Colin Farrell, and his character decides he if he does not find someone, he'd like to be turned into a lobster, which is where the title comes from. Um, but stars Colin Farrell. You also have Rachel Weisz, uh, John C. Riley, and Ben Wishaw, and it's I think it's a beautiful, strange film and it definitely captured me i don't know what you thought of it yeah i mean i I don't want to talk too much because i think we're going to uh you know it might be uh, a little higher on my list um but uh you know it's if you have seen dogtooth and you enjoyed dogtooth or alps or any of lanthimos's other films you are going to love the lobster it is very much in that same vein um but uh we're going to be getting to that a little later too um, What's your fourth favorite film? Well, my fourth favorite uh, is uh, actually by the New York Film Festival. One of the cool things they do is they have uh, a filmmaker in residence program, uh, and they have one a year. Uh, and basically, uh, that filmmaker kind of, uh, you know, they, they see films at the Film Society, they get a little bit of financial support, they get grants, whatever. Um, and um, uh, my, my fourth film is from uh, this year's Filmmaker in Residence, and that is uh, Athena Rachel Sangari uh, and her film Chevalier, okay. which is, um, I mean, I, I, I think one of the important things about going to any film festival is reading the full description for every film. Regardless of whether you think you're going to want to see a documentary or, you know, you whatever. You will surprise yourself. Yeah, you will surprise <laughs> yourself. And I think that's one of the great things about the New York Film Festival in particular, or any film festival really, but particularly New York, is that there's always one or two films each year that like you just go to on kind of a whim. You might have a, a free Saturday or whatever. You catch it and you're just kind of transported by this great film that you otherwise normally wouldn't have seen. And Chevalier was that kind of movie for me this year. Um, it, it stars this great uh, ensemble cast. It's a Greek film, um, just like uh, The Lobster. Um and um, it just uh, it basically it centers on these six men who take a, who take a little bit of a vacation together uh, on this yacht as they sail around kind of all these Greek islands and uh, you know uh, just just basically you know a Greek vacation a man's a man's 
week away, I guess you could say. And they become a bit bored um, of just, you know, regularly showing off to each other. And so they enter into this competition called Chevalier, or basically which man is the best. And they begin to grade each other on everything they do uh, in search of, you know, which which among them is the best uh, is the best man. So they're grading them on, you know, their, their, their age, their, you know, ability to lift weights, to fish, you know, all the way to their erection sizes. So it's, it's this black comedy. And it's, uh, I, I, I just think that Sangari has this, um, she has this amazing way of kind of, uh, perceiving, uh, male interactions and kind of, uh, just kind of cutting to the core of uh, hypermasculinity in a way that I don't think um, uh, I could be wrong here, but that any male filmmaker might have been able to do in the exact same way. Um, so I think uh, being the observer to uh, to male power dynamics actually was a huge benefit to her as a writer director on this film. Um, I, I, it doesn't have a distributor yet in the U.S. It doesn't have a release date. I hope it's going to be sometime in 2016. Uh, and there was even talk that uh, it might get remade as a Hollywood uh, film, as a big-budget Hollywood comedy, which, you know, may, may not be the best thing. But um, definitely uh, I could see this hitting VOD platforms next year. It's one to check out. Uh, so my number four was uh, Chevalier. Good choice. I didn't have the opportunity to see that, but... Definitely putting that on my to see list. Yeah, it, it it's definitely worth a viewing. Well, uh, moving right on down our list, um, my number three, which we've actually already briefly heard, is Bridge of Spies, Steven Spielberg new film. Um, I guess just to add on to everything Gavin said before. The one thing that really captivated me about this film was just the relationship that Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance's characters develop. And it's really... It's just like... I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a brothership you see develop on screen. And you have the fabulous Tom Hanks who just disappears into this role. And you have Mark Rylance who... I didn't even recognize for at least 15 minutes, which Gavin couldn't believe, but um, I I was just very captivated by the relationship. And you have Tom Hanks, who's being basically chastised almost non-verbally by his community. Um, people are throwing stuff at his house and terrorizing his family and... Well, they're, they're, and they, and we should say that they're doing this because he is supporting, well, he's not supporting, he's just defending. He's doing his job yeah. and defending him and give, making sure he sees a fair trial, which the rest of the country does not want for him. Right. They, they basically want him executed and they want him in the chair, just like the Rosenbergs. And you see this, this sweet relationship develop on screen and they both start to care for one another and... I think that's one of my favorite parts of the film. And we had the opportunity to see a Q&A after the film um, with the main actors and with Steven Spielberg. And it was it was really interesting to hear their development of their relationship off screen. Um, well, and we also heard from uh, 
the the children of the character that Tom Hanks portrays. Um, so that that was that was kind of interesting because this family kind of went through this whole whirlwind, you know, because this guy was like a national hero because basically he was taking the Mark Rylands character and he was exchanging him for two Americans, one student and then one uh, Marine, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this guy was an American hero. And um, to to hear it, to hear the story from them, you know, about the inside, it, it it was kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, without giving anything... Oh, I mean, this is all historical, so it's right. nothing I could possibly give away. But if people aren't familiar with the story, it, it's a little heartbreaking that we heard their children say, and Tom Hanks even said himself, you know, they they never spoke again, these two individuals, after the final events transpired. Right. If I leave it at that yeah. way. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I just think it's a, I think it's a great film and it's a testament. I mean, I think Tom Hanks is perfectly cast, obviously, because uh, this is what Tom Hanks does best. He plays the everyman. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. To me, it was just a, a fun, enjoyable movie that I would not mind just like, you know, shelling out you know, Manhattan ticket prices to go see, which, uh, for those of you who don't live here, it are very expensive. So you basically have to sell your right pinky. Yeah. So. To, to get an admission. So, um, that's why we're only doing a top five. Okay. <laughs> so, um, my number three then, uh, would be, uh, the new Todd Haynes film and that's Carol. Uh, it stars Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett. Rooney Mara, of course, won the best actress, uh, award at Cannes. Uh, this past year, and um, it is uh, it is definitely something. I I gotta say, I was a little skeptical going into this movie, um, not because of the buzz. I mean, the buzz is you know incredible around this film, but uh, as somebody who had seen uh, the Todd Haynes miniseries on HBO, Mildred Pierce, <laughs> with Kate Winslet, and was just absolutely bored to tears. Um, I don't know. Like, I know what it's like for Todd Haynes to do a movie in this particular era and, like, bore me to tears. And so I was worried that this would happen with this film. But really, just from the opening images, I knew I was in the hands of somebody who had spent a lot of time with this project. And this this was going to be, like, the, the most intense distillation of this particular screenplay. Um, and this story. And I think he's aided uh, in large part by these two great performances. Uh, Kate Blanchett obviously is one of the most gifted actresses working today, but Rooney Mara is somebody who I personally didn't have a great affinity for. I mean, before this film, my favorite Mara was Kate Mara. Um, and I, I just think uh, Rooney Mara, I think in this film, partially because she has to work opposite Kate Blanchett, but also because Todd Haynes is a great actor's director, as we know from his previous work. Um, I think she sheds a lot of the pretense and the, the actoriness that she might have had in other roles, uh, most notably Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I think. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's a really beautiful performance, and I actually think in many ways she has to do the heavy lifting mm-hmm. um, because she's doing she's doing the heavy lifting and she's doing the hard work because she isn't allowed to emote. 
And she also, you know, she has to work off Kate Blanchett. So that alone. Right. Yeah, she has to work off Kate Blanchett, but Kate Blanchett can go off and she can have the more she has the more showboatier role. And mm-hmm. obviously she does it well because she's Kate Blanchett, but um the Rooney Mara character is very much I think she's closeted in every sense of the word. And well, <laughs> that could have a few meanings with this film. Right. Um, and so I, I think Mara portrays that really, really well. And, um, uh, I think for those of us who were following Can, uh, as it was happening in all the awards, we were kind of taken aback when, uh, uh, Rooney Mara won the best actress and not Kate Blanchett or anything. But, um, I, I would say that's well-deserved. And I, I think the movie's just really just a gorgeous human look at these two people who are, uh, lovers at a time when they uh when that just isn't uh accepted um so uh that movie comes out in limited release uh november 20th uh i highly encourage everyone to take it uh, just to you know take your girlfriend take your boyfriend take whatever take your uh, lover take your lover to go see this movie because uh, it really is just kind of a beautiful love story at the end of the day um and so with that i guess uh we're on to your number two then jenny I think this is going to be the best transition we'll have on this show today because uh, my number two is Carol. <laughs> Fabulous. So let's just keep talking Carol. Uh, my favorite part about this film is that this is probably, for me, the best romance film of the year. Um, and I like my romance films. I don't like them super cheesy. And I think that this film was very beautiful and it had its tender moments and it was just at times heartbreaking um and I was I was talking to Gavin about this but it's it's been great to I guess see more we we don't often get to see females gay females in period pieces kind of coping yeah I mean I I would say we don't go we don't see uh lesbians on screen at all, really. Except for maybe the kids are all right. The kids right. are all right or yeah. whatever. It's it's mainly, you know, and this is a topic of conversation within the LGBT community. It's like, you know, if there's if there's a quote-unquote gay movie with gay characters, it's going to be two gay men. And they're usually white. And they're usually white. And of course, you know, these ladies are most definitely white uh, <laughs> and uh, middle to upper class. But um, I, I think it was a nice change of pace. And I, I agree. I, I think going off of what you had to say about Rooney Mara, um, I have never liked her more in this role. Um, I thought she was, frankly, I, I don't know why I keep thinking everyone is unrecognizable, but she just really disappeared into this, this role of Therese, and um, I just wanted to keep watching. And just another thing that kept me so transfixed on the story was the the score for me which the carter uh, burwell score yeah. the at the q a after the screening the director todd haynes said it was so difficult for them to find music that was better than the temp music they'd been using right and, and uh yeah i mean it definitely to me that was one of the most striking scores of the year because mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't overpowering but it had it had the themes you know, that you could follow, and I I just think it was, uh, I think that worked beautifully, and that definitely elevated the film. I just, I I couldn't agree more, and I really, I think this is going to be the top 
romance film of the year or maybe one of the top films of the year and why limit it to romance right um and how would that compare to like a film like far from the madding crowd which came out (laughs) earlier this year and i know that you really enjoyed i really enjoyed it um i i'd say that for me this is probably above far so it's carol then far from the madding crowd in terms of romance yeah Uh, I mean, I wasn't as high on uh, Far From the Madden Crowd, and uh, in case you don't know, it was it was released by Fox Searchlight earlier this year. It had Carrie Mulligan uh, as the lead, and it was based on a, on a Thomas Hardy novel. Uh, so it was set in the 1800s, so a little bit uh, a little bit farther back. But um, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think Carol comes out really well in that particular matchup. Um, so that's Carol. And once again, that comes out in limited release uh, November 20th. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be expanding wide uh, eventually with those two actresses oh, I'm sure. in the leads uh, and with the critical uh, raves it will be getting. Um, so just moving right along, number two, um, just to uh, just to go off uh, Jenny's earlier pick, uh, my number two would be The Lobster uh, by Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, I just think... Uh, I, I, I just think he's one of the most uh, creative directors, writer-directors working today. Um, I mean, his his sense of humor, um, his 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 weird, off kilter, dark as night sensibility, uh, just really kind of cuts to the core of. In in the case of uh, this film, it really cuts to the core of uh, relationships and monogamous relationships specifically mm-hmm. uh, in just like the most perfectly brutally satirical <laughs> way possible. And um, it, it's a movie that it you it thinks that that is not afraid to go as deep as it takes to get to the heart of what it's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times when you do these, when you do these great metaphors, uh, or when you tell these great tall tales, sometimes you don't take it far enough. And if there's one criticism that cannot be levied against Lanthimos's work, it's that he never takes it far enough. Because he definitely takes it past the <laughs> he line. He takes it past the line, and then ten feet and then, further. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, I mean, I think... And I think that's great. I mean, in many ways, this reminds me of a movie uh, that came out uh, earlier this year called The Tribe, um, which, uh, two completely different movies, um, but uh, I I think they they share something in that um, they both, they both have a point of view that is so direct um, and a purpose uh, that is so pure that uh it's difficult to look away even though sometimes you want to um i think this is pretty damn close to a perfect movie uh and is probably going to be very high on my top 10 favorite films of the year list um i just can't see it not be and i hope that it gets again i'm kind of confused why um why the uh why the distributor isn't releasing it in time for awards contention or awards consideration in 2015, but uh, I'm hoping that the general public will be able to see this early 2016 because I I do think that this is just a really terrific movie. It's definitely one to watch out for, and I yeah, 
Yeah, I mean that's that. <laughs> that's all simple that can, as it could be. Yeah, that's all that can really be said about the lobster. Um, all right, so we have gotten to our top, our top favorite of uh, the entire festival. Uh, Jenny, what do you got? I I'm worried about your reaction to this one just because I enjoyed it so much, and I'm I'm just worried what you will think about my choice. But um, my number one favorite film of the festival this year was. Uh, Robert Zemeckis' The Walk, wow. um, which it, it actually has already come out. It's already in release. It's um, already in limited release. Uh, so I think it's IMAX 3D, right? Yeah, now. it's IMAX only, uh, but this weekend uh, it's going to be uh, in wide release. And if you can see it in 3D, you should, because honestly, I, I can't imagine a better format to see it in. But um, I think this was one of the ultimate thrillers of the year. I often found myself, like, wringing my fingers together and my hands were sweaty at the end of the movie, and that rarely happens to me in a theater, um, which is one of the reasons why it is number one on my list, because um, I've never had a movie just affect me like that so much before. And I think it's so perfect for the New York Film Festival, and especially for its opening night film, because it is so quintessentially New York. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, it's it's basically Man on Wire in fictionalized format. I yeah, think, Man, or, on, Man on Wire or, being uh, the documentary from a few years back about Philippe Petit, who, who walked a high wire act between uh, the World Trade Centers. And it, I don't know what you thought of it, but the the graphics that they used in the film and the CGI... Whatever they did, whatever they used to create this New York skyline and the Twin Towers, it was beautiful. Which uh, is, and and that's kind of, uh, and, and I mean, that's obviously a testament to Zemeckis as a filmmaker. Um, but I mean, this, this film had a budget of only a little bit over, um, a little bit over 30 million. And to be able to both do a period film and to do a heavily CGI period film, on that budget is uh, is really impressive, um, regardless of what you think about the film. And, I mean, just going with that, you have a cast with Joseph Gordon-Lovett as Philippe Petit, which some people have criticized him and his accent, but if you listen to the actual Philippe Petit speak, it's uncanny, the resemblance and vocal quality that they both... Um. That's what I've taken away from that, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly your opinion. Um, I think the walk is a the walk is a little bit of a problem for me, just because uh, the James Marsh film Man on Wire that you referenced earlier. I know you haven't seen it, but it's uh, to me that is a, a spectacular uh, a documentary. And if you're going to dramatize those events, to me, you have to find some way to top. Uh, Marsh's film, and I, I just don't think Zemeckis gets there. I think it was fun. I think it was a, a fun enough crowd pleaser, and I, you know, I enjoyed myself. Um, but uh, I can't say I was as taken with it as you were. Um, but it, it, it definitely, if you're seeing The Walk this weekend and you enjoy it, or you just want to know more about this uh, real historical event, I would, I would check out uh, the James Marsh film uh, Man on Wire. James Marsh, of course, directed uh, last year's Theory of Everything. So uh, if you were a fan of that film, you should check it out anyway. But uh, it sounds like uh, The Walk was your favorite film. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, I guess uh, 
I'm going in a completely opposite direction uh, with my number one, and it's a movie that, uh, to me, if, if you've been watching the festival or uh, just hearing about it tertiarily, um, this is kind of the this is kind of the movie that got the most um, the biggest lift off from uh, its festival slot, and that is uh, The Witness. And it's uh, directed by James D. Solomon. He's a first-time filmmaker. Um, and, uh, I mean, this movie is, uh, it, it kind of, it blew me away, and it took me by surprise. It's about uh, the murder of Kitty Genovese, um, who was murdered uh, about 53 years ago in New York. And it's that famous story of the woman who was murdered uh, and as all her neighbors watched and nobody said anything. I think it was 38 witnesses or something and nobody said anything. And her brother, uh, the the documentary follows around her brother, who, um, you know, is still very much obviously coping with the death of his sister, who he loved. And um, he's he's really trying to get to the bottom of what happened that night. And is is that New York, is that original New York Times story true? Uh, did 38 of her neighbors just really turn their backs on her when she was, you know, being murdered and about to be raped? And um, it's, you know, it's a film that obviously is, you know, it takes some dark turns. It also takes some unexpected turns. And it had me tearing up at multiple uh, points in the film because... I think, and I think that's a testament to Solomon's direction here, because he really walks a fine line between something that could be kind of treacly and something that could be, um, that we'd seen so many other times. And, you know, if you're a fan of true crime, you've seen, you know, the brother who can't get over the death of his sister or whatever, the loved one who can't get over the death of a loved one story. You've seen that archetype before. And I think um, it's a testament to Solomon uh, and to Bill Genovese, who's uh, Kitty's brother, uh, who we follow in the film, um, that uh, it never goes that way. And it, we really, we feel this sense of loss and we feel this sense of purpose uh, that this man has as he tries to explore uh, his sister's death and as he lives with the ramifications of his sister's death that it had on him. Uh, it's just, I think it's an incredibly moving and powerful film. And there's one image in particular at the end um, that I, I don't want to spoil for anybody, but uh, it, it's the big set piece at the end once you see the film. And it just, uh, I think it, you know, it kind of ruined me for a little bit. Um, and it's, to me, this is uh, even more so than The Walk, maybe. I think this is a New York story. Um, and it's something that is almost shameful for New Yorkers. Just it, yeah, the it's idea a blight that people could let this go on, or if this did happen, we're not going to let it ever happen again. Right. It, it's something that's kind of touchy for some New Yorkers. Yeah, I think. and it's also it's also yeah, it's a blight on the city's record. And uh, but also, I, I I think it's very much a New York movie because you see these people who are being these people who are being interviewed 53 years later and he goes to uh he goes to this apartment building 
that is still standing. The layout's still the same. The neighborhood's still the same. The 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 um the son of uh, one of the women who used to live there, he lives in the building still. Like that is that is a story that can only happen in New York, and uh, I just I just found it really beautiful and just emotional, and I I was really blown away by this documentary. It doesn't have a distributor that I'm aware of. Um, I'm, I am I assume it's going to play somewhere in 2016, um, but really keep your eyes out for this movie because I think it's something special. And that's The Witness by James D. Solomon, and that was my favorite film of the festival. Fantastic. And I, I think... Um... I think we can move right into some of our honorable mentions. Yeah, for sure. Um, were there any that uh, you had that you just well, wanted to... in no particular order, just bouncing off of everything you just said, I have The Witness on my list, um, which, I mean, it's everything you said. I felt the exact same things. And we, we've been so, so fortunate at most of the screenings we've gone to. There's been a Q&A afterwards, and... Bill Genovese, who the the film follows, is he was there, and we were so lucky to be able to hear him speak about his experiences, his experience with the film, um, everything he hopes, you know, audience members take away from it, and it, it was just very special, um, right. and I, I'm so glad we got to see it. And sorry, I don't want to co-opt your list, but really, this, this movie's not about the loss of one person it's about it's about the, the recovery process and it's about it's kind of about the loss in all of us whenever we lose somebody it's it connects to those universal themes well and i think everyone can kind of see something there's that theme that's in there as well and as the the director of the new york film festival was also there um kent jones and he said he thought this was the ultimate love story um yeah. a brother and his sister yeah it's i mean it's it's heartbreaking but uh, i i could not agree more so okay so the witness we all <laughs> go see it I, when it comes out you please have to. do please do do yourself a favor but uh what else did you have um also on my list just honorable mentions no particular order i also have uh the martian which already came out we were able to see this kind of special we were, screening yeah we were able to see it the sunday before it came out um i thought it was a fun film i i like those blockbustery type films starring matt damon as they always seem to do um also had jessica chastain Kristen wig jeff daniels and chiwetel ejiofor um i thought it was a very solid cast i thought it was fun um kate mara and, and kate mara yes our other mara sister yeah. it was a family affair at this festival uh but i would recommend it it's fun if you have a chance to see it if you haven't already seen it which yeah, is it is already out yeah you you um, probably have already but uh yeah it was it was a fun movie and it's directed by ridley scott just, yep. another we, ridley scott space movie we saw it on a special night uh it was like the that blood moon that yeah we did moon, see it yeah we so saw it on the night of the blood moon that was and and special. we sat Right, uh, we sat right behind Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, so that is a thing that can only happen at the New York Film Festival. That's kind of... It's very surreal. It's and... surreal, and I had to stop myself from fanboying. <laughs> um, but uh, did you have anything else on your... I, I also had um, this this French film called Microbe and Gasoline, uh, directed by Michel Gondry, um, starring two 
relatively no names, I guess, is, I guess that could be insulting, but um, it's a, uh, we have Microbe, played by, forgive my French pronunciation, um, Ange Dargent, and uh, Theophile Baquet, who played Gasoline. <laughs> um, and it's basically, it follows these two boys, uh, they develop this friendship, they're how old would you say they are? Like middle school? Yeah, they're they're like fourteen, early high school. Yeah, and and they develop this friendship. It's very sweet. It follows them as they they build this uh, automobile, I guess, and uh, go on a little adventure. Yeah, it's very sweet, and I love the score too. It's very sweet. It's a little bit different for a Gondry film, but it, he definitely works in the quirks with the vehicle that they build. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I I just thought it was a really nice coming of age story. Um, uh, a little bit light, but I, I enjoyed it as well. What do you have on your list? Well, I had three quick films that I just kind of wanted to uh, to mention. Um, the first one would be uh, Mountains Made Apart uh, by the great Chinese filmmaker Jia uh, uh, Um I, I mean, th- th- this film is just really just really gorgeous in so many ways. It takes, it takes place over the course of three different decades, uh, following, uh, the same actress, uh, Tao Zhao, who does this amazing job of aging over the course of 30, 30 years. And, um, it's, it's about, I mean, it's about everything from, uh, China, uh, the growth of China, uh, the international, uh, the American influence on China, uh, to, uh, you know, coming of age, to um, uh, just uh, self-identity, to Chinese identity. I just thought it was a really beautiful meditation on all of that. Um, and uh, just filmed really well and anchored again by this really great performance uh, by Tao Zhao. Uh, no release date yet on that, but I would assume sometime in 2016, as it does have uh, a U.S. distributor. Uh, the second one, uh, to go off uh, Jenny's earlier pick, Right Now, Wrong Then, by uh, Hong San Su. Um, to me, this film... Uh, it was it was a beautiful film, but it was also a little bit flawed. I think in um, as I look back on it, it gets better uh, as the days go on. I think, mm-hmm. um, but it's really anchored. I just wanted to say by these two great performances. Uh, the first one by uh, Jae Young Jung, I believe, and then uh, Min Hee Kim, um, and it's it's about this. Uh, it's about this director uh, who... Uh, He's going to a film festival, Yeah, actually. who's who's actually <laughs> attending this very small uh, film festival uh, in uh, Korea uh, with his film. And he, he, uh, he meets this girl. And it's about uh, the right the right way to go about that and the wrong way to go about that. And they show us both ways. And it's, uh, I just thought it was the first half is, I I thought it was hilarious and touching. The second half was a bit more challenging, but in retrospect, I liked it a lot. Uh, and fine bottle of wine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like a fine, not too expensive bottle of wine because I'm on a budget. Um, and then uh, the third, the third honorable mention for me would be Where to Invade Next, uh, the new Michael Moore film, which is coming out sometime at the end of 2015 uh, through a new uh, through a new distributor that they're actually making, um, but uh, we're not sure on the date 
of that yet, but it's a Michael Moore film. And, um, I mean, I've been a fan of his, of his later work. Um, I mean, everybody of course knows Bowling for Columbine, Roger and Me, Fahrenheit 9-11. Um, but, uh, some, some of his newer films haven't been as critically adored. Um, you know, among them, Sicko and Capitalism, a Love Story, which I actually kind of enjoy. Uh, but Where to Invade Next is actually kind of different, uh, in a way. I mean, it's very much Michael Moore up to his own tricks. He's putting himself very much in the action, uh, sometimes acting a little bit like the buffoon, a lot of comedy. Um, but there's, there's a lot of touching, uh, moments in this film, um, uh, particularly as it relates to, uh, he goes to, um, basically the, the film is about him going to all these different countries, uh, to, uh, quote unquote, invade them and take back one of their good ideas and bring it back to America. And, um, the, uh, the most touching part of the film to me is when they go to Norway and they explore, uh, the repercussions of the gun violence, mm. uh, that, you know, obviously there was this huge, uh, terrorist attack that everybody knows about in Norway where there was this mass shooting on an island and, you know, many, many children died. And, um, it, it, it explores the repercussions of that violence and, uh, you know, how that country, uh, works with its criminal justice system and how much it wants to forgive uh, and forget and kind of the tension between those two things. And I just thought that was really gorgeous. And I think his final uh, conclusion, his thesis really, uh, is just really profound and beautiful. And to me, um, it, it bridges the gap that a lot of his films don't between this partisan divide that's currently in our country. And it really is a film, whether you like Michael Moore or not, whether you agree with his politics or not, I would really encourage you to see this movie and see it through to the end, because uh, I think the end is really where it hits you. Uh, and it's it's a positive, upbeat documentary. It's a lot different than what you usually see out of him, but yeah. it doesn't make it any less of a Michael Moore film. No, it's it's very much his film, but I think it, it, think it lacks that general cynicism that, um, you know, might lace a film like A Fahrenheit 9-11. So I would encourage people to go see it, especially if you haven't seen one of his films in a while. Um, but yeah, I think those are our good honorable mentions. But Jenny, not all of the movies are praiseworthy. So are there, are, was there a least favorite film for you at the festival? I, yes. <laughs> I think um, for me, it was very easy to choose my least favorite film. Um, it was one called, uh, I, I always say it wrong, but it's called Jun Junun. Junun. Junun, yeah. Um, and it, I don't necessarily, it is a film. <laughs> it's less, it's slightly less than an hour. Um, but it's, it's by Paul Thomas Anderson, which is one of the, it's the only reason actually that we went to see it. Um, it was completely sold out, a lot of buzz around it, but it was ultimately very disappointing. Um, the camera work was very shoddy and shaky and it felt very... At some parts. At some parts. It was throughout the film though, I think. And it, it just seemed, it seemed a little amateurish to me and it was really disappointing and, um... I, I I don't regret going, but I, I kind of wish I, I'd gotten an hour back of my time. 
Yeah, I, I, what I will say about that movie, uh, and it's on uh, the website Mubi, M-U-B-I, and you can see that now. It's it's available for streaming. Um, if you want to check it out it's your, yourself, it's about 50 minutes long. Uh, to me, uh, I, I completely agree with you. At points, it did feel a little bit amateur. Um but, uh, I, I mean, it really is a music film, and the movie kind of lives or dies based on whether you like the music or not. To me, I liked it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was uh, a very minor effort from Paul Thomas Anderson, probably my least favorite of his films. He, it just it felt a little bit like he was a fanboy who wanted to be in the room, and his excuse was, well, I'll film you while you play the yeah, music. Yeah, I, it sounded like Johnny Greenwood invited him on a vacation uh, and uh, to India, and he's like, yeah, of course, and maybe I'll just bring a camera just in case I want to make a movie or something. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, you know we're a bit cynical about this movie, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't the music say. is great. The so. music is great. So if you're a fan of uh, Indian music, if you're a film of Johnny Greenwood, if you're a super fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, definitely go to movie.com and check out that film. Um, for me, I had I had a, a two-way tie between Least Favorite, and I couldn't choose. Um, didn't think it would be fair to leave one out. Um, <laughs> uh, my first one would be De Palma. It's uh, the new documentary from Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow. Uh, that's Gwyneth's brother. Um, it's coming out in 2016 via A24, and uh, it is, to me, it 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 is, uh, it looks like two film students just threw it together over the weekend. Like, it, it, there's nothing special or memorable about this movie. Um, I would not recommend this movie to anybody who is not a diehard Brian De Palma fan. Unless you are a diehard fan, you are not going to enjoy this movie. Um, because it just isn't accessible to anybody, not only to anybody who hasn't seen any of his previous films, but um, just just even to the casual observer who might have seen Blowout or, you know, Carrie or, you know, one of, you know, Carlito's Way or whatever, um, you're not going to get too much out of this movie. It's very surfacy, uh, very amateurish. I was very, very disappointed by this movie, especially coming from Noah Baumbach, who, this is his third movie this year. The man is... Uh, I mean, busy, busy. Yeah, I would check his medicine cabinet to see what's in there. Um, and then uh, the the other one that it's tied with is Maggie's Plan, directed by Rebecca Miller, um, starring uh, Noah Baumbach's partner. Actually. Starring Noah Baumbach's partner, uh, Greta Gerwig also has Ethan Hawke, Julianne Moore, Bill Hader, Maya Rudolph, and that isn't even it's the full cast. Just a star-studded cast. It's a star-studded cast coming out probably in 2016 via Sony Pictures Classics. And my God, with a cast like that, you would think, I mean, clearly it's comedy. And I did not laugh once during this movie. I think it's, I think it's too easy. I think it's borderline dumb at some parts. I just, I feel like everybody is underutilized with the exception of Julianne Moore, who I, who is such a remarkable actress that she she actually takes the role and runs with it, probably in a direction that Rebecca Miller wasn't expecting, uh, but she really steals, Julianne Moore really does kind of steal the show um, from Greta Gerwig, who, I'm sorry, but how do you make Greta Gerwig boring? 
she's possibly one of the funniest actresses today. Right. And she And you give her nothing to so, work with. Yeah. It's it was very it's disappointing. It's very disappointing. And then you have a you have an actor of the caliber of Ethan Hawke who really turns in a better performance than this movie deserves. Uh, but who is who's this one note, really shrill, just whiny little bitch. And um I don't know. Uh, I, I was disappointed because I liked a lot of the performances in here, um, particularly uh, Julianne Moore and Ethan Hawke, uh, but the movie just fell completely, completely flat to me. Um, so I don't know. If you're a fan of Greta Gerwig uh, you're, and you go see this movie, uh, you're going to be disappointed. I, I just, I got to put that out there. Um, These two Greta Gerwig fans yeah, we, left the theater very sad. We were very sad. <laughs> Um, so, and that was, uh, so those are our least favorites, um, a lot of negativity, but we just wanted to quickly touch on two films that were at the festival that, um, haven't come out quite yet, um, but, uh, yeah, but that we haven't seen, but that we didn't see at the festival itself. Yes, um, and the first one we, we saw... I think we, we saw it early August. Um, yeah, we, we actually saw, saw the first uh, the first uh, test test screening for it. Um, so we actually weren't allowed to even talk about it at <laughs> until the time. now. Yeah. Um, so this is a good time to talk about it. But we we saw an early screening of Steve Jobs, which was um, the, the the centerpiece uh, film at this year's festival, and it's directed by Danny Boyle, starring Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs with uh, Seth Rogen, Kate Winslet, Jeff Daniels. Um, and I, I I enjoyed the movie. Um, I don't think it's going to necessarily be in my top five of the year. Um, but it's respectable. It's great. Michael Fassbender was great. I think Kate Winslet was a little underutilized in it, which is always sad when Kate Winslet is underutilized. Yeah, I think it's important to note that, uh, especially with Steve Jobs, we did see an early cut. Um, so this could change. I'm anxious to see it a second time. Uh, see if the just, music has changed as well. To see if the music has changed and all of that stuff. But I, I think Danny Boyle does a really great job with an Aaron Sorkin script that is really nice and tight. Uh, the performances for me uh, didn't work as well, but I think that was probably in the process of being tightened up. So I want to see it again when it comes out. It's currently in limited release in select cities, and it is going to be branching out uh, this weekend, I believe. Uh, hopefully to a wide release. Uh, and uh, that's Steve Jobs. Uh, the second movie that I want to talk about just quickly is the new Frederick Wiseman film. It's called In Jackson Heights. Uh, it's uh, it's going to go into limited release November 4th uh, in New York only. It's going to be at Film Forum, and then it's going to branch out nationally from there. Um, Frederick Wiseman, of course, is this legendary documentarian, uh, his first documentary was, of course, Titicut Follies. And he and the Maisels really kind of pioneered what we might call uh, this this more uh, verite-style filmmaking. Verite meaning no voiceover, no interviews directly to the camera. It's just fly-on-the-wall documentary filmmaking um, where, the, where the points are made through the juxtaposition of the edits. And... Um, in Jackson Heights is his 40th documentary. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't want to say too much about it other than it's great. Uh, I'm working on it, so I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say too much about it right now, but it's, it's a really terrific film. And if you haven't seen a Frederick Weissman film before, this is a great one to start. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about this hopefully in a later episode or something, but in Jackson Heights, 
uh, put it on your calendars. November 4th is when it comes to Film Forum in New York, and it will be, be expanding nationally uh, after that. Moving on, I think, uh, this is actually perfect that we just covered in Jackson Heights. Um, there was this evening, I guess we went to, uh, at the film festival called uh, Field of Vision, New Episodic Nonfiction, um, that was kind of very anchored by uh, Laura Potras, who... Poitras. Poitras, excuse me, <laughs> um, who directed Citizen Four, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary last year. Um, so this was a very exciting evening for us to go to because we didn't quite know what to expect. We knew there'd be some short films. Yeah, nobody really knew what to expect going in. Um, um, and it's a, and we should say that um, the the program is called Field of Vision: New Episodic Nonfiction. And basically, new episodic nonfiction is this idea that Laura Poitras and uh, a few of her people at the Intercept uh, had this idea of doing. And basically what they're doing is they're creating this this uh, documentary series online where they're going to have seasons and each episode is going to be its own self-contained documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, and they even have the first four episodes up right now um, online. And uh, the website is uh, theintercept.com slash field of vision. Um, and you can check out some of the ones that we're going to be talking about here. But let's talk about that. Uh, let's go back to that Laura Poitras. We were super excited to see uh, this program because it was billed as having uh, the first sneak peek at uh, the movie Asylum, which is kind of uh, people have been talking about in the documentary community for some time. It's her film on Julian Assange. And uh, essentially when she was, uh, she had been following Julian Assange ever since uh, the big WikiLeaks break. I think that was in uh, 2009-ish maybe when all those things, all the files were released. Um, But she's been following him since then. And, um, you know, just doing exactly what she did with Edward Snowden with Citizen Four. And actually at one part, uh, Edward Snowden contacted her, contacted her um, while she was filming Asylum. Uh, And originally Citizen Four was going to be about both of these men, uh, but she felt like... It it just kind of, both kind of started to unravel into these huge things that couldn't just be limited to one Right, so they needed to be two separate films. And so we saw, we saw, I think it was uh, three or four selected scenes from Asylum. Um, What did you think? I, frankly, I was a little, I was a little disappointed and a little bored with them, I think. Um, it was kind of hard to watch them separately, I think, like, the format we Well, it was we without context. In. Yeah, and that, that made it a little difficult to follow along. Um, and, like, some scenes were, like, ten minutes and others were four minutes. So it was, it was a little strange to kind of follow that format. But I, I think I'm excited for what the end product will be, just after having seen Citizen Four and been stunned by that so yeah what, what about you yeah i mean I, I i was also really anticipating asylum uh these these pieces of it uh i think because it the scenes were out of context uh it was very difficult for me to um just kind of piece together what was happening and uh, the short the selection she chose were like sometimes three or four minutes long and so it was hard for me to get into kind of this groove and there wasn't any particular arc it just seemed kind of random yeah. um I, I mean i'm sure the movie is going to be fantastic i mean this is 
a documentarian at the top of her game. But um, yeah, so uh, Asylum is one to, uh, to keep in the back of your mind. Uh, it'll probably be coming out next year, I would assume, sometime in time for the Oscar race. But along with uh, this program, uh, there were two other films that really caught our attention. Uh, and uh, I know you, uh, I know your favorite was uh, a film called Peace in the Valley, if you wanted to talk about that one. Yeah, it was this uh, short film about... 15 minutes, um, called Peace in the Valley, directed by, uh, two directors, actually, um, Michael Palmieri and Donald Mosher, and, uh, I, I have no other way to describe this film as anything but entertaining. I found myself chuckling throughout it, and, um, well, it, it was, not only was it, like, entertaining, and that's not the most important thing to have in a documentary, but it, it was also in informative and I think it was I think it was pretty good at showing both sides of the spectrum and just to give you some context it's uh it was about this the small rural town uh down south I think in Arkansas um and it, it's about it surrounded this uh gay rights LGBT rights um well, it was it was a juxtaposition. Fact, it was a, juxtapo a juxtaposition of this battle, uh, essentially for um, uh, the right uh, the, for a non discrimination clause in the mm -hmm. state's constitution in Arkansas that had been passed and has since been repealed. Uh, but it was about that getting passed, and then that was juxtaposed by uh, the biggest outdoor <laughs> stage play in the world, apparently, uh, which is basically this reinterpretation of the Passion of the Christ. Yeah, and, and it's it's the, the the people they interview in it. I, I was almost gonna say these characters because they really are. They're these they're are characters, characters yeah. and it's you you follow the guy who is the marketing manager of this the passion play. I think is what they call it. Yeah, and uh, not only is he their marketing manager, but he also plays Jesus Christ. So <laughs> it, it's just you have that going for it for itself, and they show you the behind the scenes of it and a, a few scenes from the the play, and that's juxtaposing. These, these other scenes going on in the town, and um, it's entertaining. Yeah. I, I was very pleased by it. Um, it was probably my favorite film of that night, just on pure entertainment level. Yeah, I mean, I think short docs are, are really... I, I, I wish people... I wish there were better ways for people to see these short documentaries, and I, I applaud Laura Potras for... Uh, and Glenn Greenwald and everybody at The Intercept for really uh, kind of coming up with an idea like this. Uh, basically, they're going to be releasing them for free on the website, and they're going to be doing one a week in seasons, and hopefully this will expose people to some really great documentary filmmakers and just short docs in general. And uh, before we move on to, the, to your top pick of that night, I, I just I think it's worth noting that it almost seemed a little bit like if you're a fan of Vice News, exactly, um, you would probably like these short docs, and it doesn't necessarily follow that reporting aspect that Vice has. There's, no, yeah, it's, it's very different. Yeah, it's very uh, the Vice style is very much like investigative reporting, where uh, they have an a, like a news type anchor uh, in the frame doing the interviews controlling the situation, whereas uh, these films in the Field of Vision program uh, are really, it's, each film is different because it's about, uh, it's about each filmmaker's vision. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're completely different movies and tastes, but they're all about, you know, in general, just kind of giving us this great uh, peek at these worlds that we might not otherwise see. 
or these connections we might not otherwise make. And and I think going off of that, the the film that you chose as your favorite of that night, um, really, it, it was shocking to me to find out that this is actually going on. And it, do you do you want to talk about it? Yeah. A bit? So so my film was called uh, The Above, and uh, it's uh, it's not yet on the website. I believe Jenny's is on the website. If you want to check it out, you can check it out for free. Again, uh, but uh, my my film was called The the above and it's directed by uh the great documentarian kirsten johnson and um it's it's about uh it's really a it's a movie with a surprising juxtaposition uh i don't want to give it away um but the film starts uh with um this uh hovering hot air balloon really a blimp um that um that hovers over um these uh these places that the u.s isn't occupying with boots on the ground but they still want to monitor and they have cameras on and so i think do they have cameras or do they have cameras (laughs) that is the question but uh it's the question it brings up these fascinating questions of surveillance monitoring uh and what those might do do those do those create uh, a state of fear does it lead people to self-censor themselves um and it's just this really uh, beautiful and shocking uh, at the end, the shocking juxtaposition, mm-hmm. um, just kind of bringing it literally home uh, to us here in this country. And I mean, really, uh, what The Intercept does best as a publication is really dealing with these these tricky issues of government surveillance, pri- government surveillance, privacy rights, the NSA, um, and basically military overreach, I would say. And uh, this film is the perfect encapsulation of that. And regardless of where you are on the on the political spectrum, I think this movie would terrify you. Um, it's something that I I don't think many people at all know what's are going aware on. of. Yeah. I, I I had no idea. And I mean, it, when we were doing our top five just a few hours ago, I, I really wanted to include this on my top five, but I just wanted to dedicate a little special uh, segment of this just to. Um, just to get that out there. So that's The Above, directed by Kirsten Johnston. Should be coming out in the next few weeks. Jenny's film, Peace in the Valley, is already on the website. And you can check out a few of the other great films uh, on their website as well. And once again, that's theintercept.com slash fieldofvision. And um, just, uh, just a few closing thoughts, just to close everything out. What's great about the New York Film Festival is... Um, there's so many different programs. They have uh, a dedicated avant-garde section uh, called Projections, which is great. They have a dedicated, uh, very heavily curated short section, which always sells out. They always have the retrospectives and um, revivals. revivals and all these. In addition to the main slates, the documentaries and the special events, what have you. Um but this year, uh, they, well, in all the years, they have this section called Convergence, which in recent years has really been growing into something really interesting. And Convergence is basically the transmedia program uh, of the New York Film Festival, uh, which is kind of taking from uh, its cues from Tribeca and South by Southwest, uh, who are really the two leaders uh, in this uh, type of uh, in this type of storytelling, and there were just three quick projects I just wanted to mention uh, that um, just kind of uh, uh, were interesting ways, not necessarily films, but uh, 
transmedia is 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 a mixture of different media so it could be film and theater it could be music and uh cinema it could be what have you um it's really bending the boundaries of storytelling yeah it's bending the boundaries of storytelling and that isn't necessarily even uh i mean virtual reality is certainly part of that uh but uh these are these don't rely on virtual reality um so let's let's talk about uh, at first let's talk about uh the one that maybe impressed us the most called Temping, uh, and that was uh, created by uh, a collective called Wolf Three Five Nine, and it was directed by a guy named Michael Rao. And uh, basically, this is um, it, it's a one-person experience. Only one person can experience this at a time, and uh, it's you are taken into um, this room uh, for an hour and by yourself, by yourself. And you basically are this, uh, you are a temporary worker taking over for this woman. And the story is told through an actual phone that rings, uh, and that you have to pick up an answer, a printer that's giving you messages, uh, a fax machine, and then a, uh, and then your Outlook inbox. And, and they actually have you doing some temp work as some well. Some temp they, work they, as well. You have to do the work to continue To with continue the with the story. And it's, I think it's fascinating. And, um, I mean, to me, the story, um, the story itself was a little bit, um, was a little bit weak, but I was just so impressed by, uh, the, I mean, the, the, the set design for this particular, because you mm -hmm. are literally walking into, uh, just someone's a cube, office. someone's office, someone's windowless cubicle, and it's you know all the drawers are full of candies and like you know it. it <laughs> there's just, there's tennis shoes on the ground, running yeah. shoes that you know you change into and out of when you put your high heels on at the office. Post-it notes, what whatever you Little know, cat calendar or something. Yeah, like. <laughs> it's I, I just found it really just remarkable. I I almost wish it could have been longer, but mm -hmm. uh, what what did you think about the experience? I I mean for me it was something I'd never experienced before like that it was so deeply personal being in there by yourself um you there were a few times where I was like oh my god I'm the only person in this room right now like that's a little it's weird at first um but it, it's immersive times 1000 yeah, it's immersive um, theater it's it, it's it's like virtual reality but it is reality because you're actually touching these things and it it's yeah, very... it's this interesting. It's this interesting mixture of immersive theater uh, and film that uh, is just really. I just think it's really creative, and I, I, my, my hope. I, I, I want to try to interview these guys. I think that just that to see how they do it. Amazing. Um. So I mean, we're we're gonna try to do that. So maybe we might have them on the podcast. Who and knows? I, I just want to throw kudos to whoever was stage managing or putting out the different lighting cues because the lights change every so often. Mm -hmm. it, it was just all very perfectly timed because you're, they have to pay attention to every single thing you're doing in that cube and doing on the computer right. to be able to do these certain cues. And that was, that was outstanding. Right. It was, yeah, that it really is a great experience. And I, I'm, we need to, we need to definitely track those people down so we can have a longer conversation with them about that. But that was called temping. Um, and, uh, our, our next two, um, you know, aren't going to talk about too much, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the internet of things. It was created in the Columbia digital storytelling lab. Um, and it was basically, um, 
how would you describe this thing? It it seemed almost it seemed like a storytelling activity. Um, I think it was it, we were basically the premise is you're separated into groups. I think there were four groups, and you have to solve this murder. But in the process of solving this murder, you're creating the story entirely. Um, and I think there, I think there's a lot of potential for it. Um, I don't know. What, what did yeah, you think of a, it? <laughs> there's a lot of potential, but I think uh, there was an urge, uh, kind of a desire to um, involve things like uh, Periscope, uh, just because they were new and creative, and um, that didn't really add anything to the experience. Um, it was very much a collective storytelling experience. Um, I think it would be fun to do with a group of friends, or if you have a good group of strangers, that might be good too. But I don't know. I, I, I found myself kind of bored, and I was kind of wondering exactly, um, you know, how this all fit together. And mm -hmm. it ultimately just didn't feel uh, worthwhile. I was kind of disappointed by it because it seemed to hold a lot of promise. But they are still working on it. They're still workshopping it. There are things going on all around the world with it. So, um, you know, hopefully... Uh, Hopefully they'll work out some of those kinks. Um, but then our last one, uh, just quickly, it's called The Dishonesty Project, uh, and they're presenting The Truth Box, and that was created by Dan Ariely and Yael uh, Melamed. Um, and uh, basically, you just go into this box, <laughs> and you, um, you confess uh, uh, a lie that you told. Um, and they want you to be as honest as possible. And as specific as possible. Um, and, and the thought behind this is, and, and of course these get published online and whatever, um, but uh, the thought behind this is, is that if we each share something that we've lied about, it will make us more honest and it will also make us more understanding of each other's lies. Um, so it, it's kind of a bit of a performance art piece mm -hmm. in, additions, in addition to this, uh, this transmedia thing, but... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it was interesting to do. We didn't really see any. Um, no, but they, we were in the booth. We were in it. the booth. It was about the size of a photo booth, so it wasn't it wasn't too small of a box. Don't yeah. worry, any claustrophobes out there. But uh, it, it, I think it was interesting. And I, when we walked out, they we were handed a postcard to check out their documentary called The Dishonesty Project. Yeah, they they have um, a documentary which is basically a series of clips of people you know, confessing exactly what we did. And if I understood it correctly, I think these clips that people like Gavin and I did um, are going to be posted on YouTube or somewhere on the internet. Um, yeah. I, so I think their website, search. yeah, I think their website is going to be kind of their hub, but they do post them on YouTube, I think. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was the truth box. Um, so, Jenny, it's been uh, the 53rd New York Film Festival. Do you have any final thoughts, any final films that you wanted to talk about or experiences at the festival that you kind of wanted to get off your chest as we kind of close this part of the year? Well, I, I think this has been my fourth year going to the festival and I, I, I continue to be excited by it every single year. And I, I think... For me, I don't, just as an observation, I feel like a lot of these films seem to be tied with a theme of love or relationships this year. I could be wrong. It's just something I've kind of noticed across all these films. Um, whether they did that on purpose or not, my guess is not. But uh, 
I think that it, it, it was just a really refreshing year in terms of that. It wasn't too heavy, except there were a few films we saw which were very, very much intense. Um, but I've really enjoyed myself this year, and I'm already looking forward to next year. It's crazy that two and a half weeks have just, for me, they've flown by. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think this year I, I've been going... I think this was my sixth year, maybe. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think every year the slate has really just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. um, as more and more people, frankly, more interest builds in the festival and it's harder to get tickets. Um, but uh, the great thing about the New York Film Festival is that they always have standby lines if you're... If you're on the standby line, you're probably going to get in. They, see they, they tend to do encore screenings for high demand films. Yeah, which exactly. Is pretty nice. Which is really nice. And what was nice this year, um, this this festival started so long ago. Uh, this was when the Pope was in town, and <laughs> uh, right. they actually had to delay their opening night uh, to Saturday. And so the Friday, he the Pope was in town. They actually had a free night where they where they uh, where they showed uh, a few of the films from the Film Foundation, Martin Scorsese's nonprofit that's uh, dedicated to uh, preserving uh, classic cinema. And uh, so we saw All That Jazz, a new restoration, which was, I mean, that was great. That was excellent. Um, and uh, so it's just things like that that make the New York Film Festival really special for if you really love film. We also saw in the revival section, we saw Blowout, um, the Palma De Palma film. film. I saw that immediately. For me, that was a double feature that night with the De Palma <laughs> documentary and Blowout. At least you um, ended with something you liked. Yeah, at least I ended with something <laughs> I liked. Um, and then I also saw like The Memory of Justice, uh, which is this five-hour uh, expansive doc from Marcel Opals, which never really got a U.S. release, um, but just, uh, you know, something that you could only see at the New York Film Festival in the revival section. Um, and then, you know, there was also, there were also movies like uh, Son of Saul, which uh, you might have been referring to when you said, <laughs> Very you intense. know, really intense, dark <laughs> movies that was in the film comment selects and the special events section of the festival. Um, that You know, it wasn't my favorite. Um, wasn't even really an honorable mention for me, but, um, you know, it was definitely, uh, you know, it was definitely nice to see it, especially after all the noise it made at Cannes. Um, and then, you know, you, you get to see great movies like Cemetery of Splendor uh, by, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, um, <laughs> but um, the, the great Thai director. But we're able to be exposed to these But we're films, able to be exposed which... to these things. Or like the three-part Arabian Nights uh, trilogy, you know, whether or not you uh, like it or movies. not. Um, uh, but then, uh, you know, it also, it's a nice mixture of art films, films from Cannes, world premieres like Miles Ahead, uh, the new Don Cheadle film which closed out the festival um to you know revivals convergence free talks like we went to a michael moore one which is fascinating um just everything you could possibly want if you uh you know for people who enjoy films as an art form as mm -hmm. opposed to a consumer product and I think that's what New York does best. And that's why we look forward to it every year. And uh, I, I seriously cannot wait for next year. Um, honestly, I'm a little bit exhausted after this year. It's been a long time. I think, I think together we saw 20, or we experienced 22 events total together. Gavin saw a bit more than that. <laughs> I, Yeah, I saw more than that. But yeah, so it's been, it's been a whirlwind 17 days. Um, but uh, I'm so glad that... Uh, uh, this year's uh, festival was a success. 
So, Jenny, I guess the big question now is, um, are we going to do this again, this podcast thing? I mean, if, if I have to keep talking about film... <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, it's it's kind of tricky because I, I, you know, I think we both really enjoy podcasting and we both, you know, we both kind of miss it to varying degrees. And so uh, we basically just, we don't want to go through the IMDb Top 250 anymore. It's changed think. a lot since it's changed we a lot. spoke to you guys. Yeah, I, I don't want to <laughs> set anything in stone, but I think there have been a few copycats who have... Uh, started doing that after us and that's fine so we just got to think of a good format really to uh to talk about film and maybe a few other things as well so uh if you have any ideas yona if you're out there yona, um, we know you're listening yona, this is for you yona let's be honest you're the you're the only person listening no, i'm just kidding <laughs> um no but if you do have any feedback if you just want to say hi again that would be so great uh and just any ideas of uh you know future formats for the show hopefully we'll be back um sometime within the next few weeks with a with a with something that's a, a bit more finalized for you guys but we just wanted to give you this update and check in and see how everybody was doing and just say hey yeah what's up we're back <laughs> and with that i'm jenny luffler and i'm gavin briscoe and this podcast is not yet rated Adieu, Auf Wiedersehen, Gesundheit, Farewell. <laughs>